Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Budget Day in Ontario is a springboard for the election campaign. The province being asked to revisit its formula for ODSP. We remember those who've been killed or injured at work. Learn how the latest census data could shape the future of health care. Have you been paying attention to the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard court case? And get a new cookbook from a popular Hamilton bakery. The GMH Podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the Ford government is scheduled to take the wraps off its last budget prior to this June's provincial election today. And then immediately, we're hearing adjourn the legislature. Colin DeBello is our new Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Colin. How are you? Hey, I'm well, Rick. How are you? I'm good. It sounds like this is going to be a case of, hey, everyone, here's the budget, and now we're in election mode. Yeah, I mean, this really is not a budget. It's more of a campaign document, and it's a springboard from, uh, you know, this this uh, budget release and right into the election campaign. The election is now less than a week away. By law, it has to be called in a Wednesday, which means it's going to be called on Wednesday, May 4th. And, and this is really what the progressive conservatives are going to have on offer. So this is a unique situation for all of us, because for the first time, you and I actually get to vote on this budget rather than politicians debating it and passing it. So we're the ones who ultimately get to decide whether the Ford government should reintroduce the budget in a couple of months or whether some other party should have a a crack at government. So as I mentioned, we've heard that there's a handful of themes to today's document. What is the government going to be focusing on in particular? Well, the government's going to be focusing a lot on building and growth, right? That's kind of where they've been heading over the last number of months. Uh, So building hospitals, roads, bridges, transit. In fact, this budget uh, is going to be spending about $158 billion over the next 10 years. So that's about $15 billion per year in uh, what what could be a lot of critical infrastructure uh, spends uh, in the province. So that's the big headline that uh, the government is looking to kind of uh, hone in, right? That they are the party of building, that they are going to be focusing on really, you know, a lot of construction in the province. The finance minister, Peter Bethlenfalvy, had said recently that, you know, look back, if, if you look back, um, or future generations look back at this time, they'll say, wow, this is really a renaissance for the province, a, a period of growth and a lot of construction. So that's what they're focusing on. Of course, we're going to see a lot of other goodies as well, right? Like for low-income earners, uh, there's the lift tax credit. That means the first $30,000 of income was not taxed. Now they're increasing that threshold to $50,000. So they're saying in total about 1.1 million workers in Ontario will benefit from this uh, lift tax credit. That means $50,000 of their income tax-free. Uh, we're also expecting to see other other you know, retail type promises, right? Something similar to cutting the gasoline tax or taking the the stickers, uh, the, the fee for the vehicle re- uh, license plate stickers off. We could see other things in that vein because that's what the premier is all about. He's, he likes populist promises and that's what we're expecting to see. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News. And we're focused on today's budget that will be tabled later on today at Queen's Park. The NDP released its election campaign platform the other day. The slogan is strong, ready, working for you. And the big focus, at least in the first few pages, is promises to make life affordable. Do you get the sense that the affordability issue is going to trump things like health care, jobs and the economy in this campaign? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, healthcare and COVID-19 really is 
top of mind for a lot of people, according to one Ipsos poll done for Global News. Uh, that's because obviously we're coming out of a two-year pandemic in which a lot of people were exposed to the healthcare system like never before and saw the inadequacies in our healthcare system. However, a lot of us over the last number of weeks and months have really started to see the, the pressures that the pandemic are putting on all of us financially, right? Uh, the cost of housing has gone up. The cost of living has gone up from gasoline to groceries. Um, everything seems to be rising. The only thing that isn't rising is our paychecks. And so the one thing that all parties are going to be focused on in this election is affordability, right? Things that will A, put more money in your pockets and B, help make life more affordable by either increasing the number of um, you know, affordable rental units on, on the market or uh, bringing more affordable housing or just more housing, more development uh, to cut down the price of uh, you know, the average single family home in, in Ontario. So affordability is going to be big. Uh, we, we haven't seen a lot of retail type promises from, from the other parties, uh, but, but certainly that will be one of the key issues because you know, everyone in the province can understand affordability. It's one of those conversations you probably have with your friends. It's one of those conversations you might have at, at, at home, right? Or every time you go to the grocery store. So that's one thing that's top of mind. And it's it's easy enough to, to understand for the general electorate. And that could be the defining issue of this campaign. Got a couple more minutes with Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What do you think is going to be the most intriguing aspect of the upcoming election campaign? Is it Ms. Horvath? finally getting over the hump and, and winning the election? Is it, you know, a newcomer like a Stephen Del Duca who's been tied to the Wynn government before as transportation minister? Can he get the job done? You know, Doug Ford has lost uh, many of his key cabinet members. What's the most intriguing part of this campaign in your mind? So I, I'm looking for two things, right? There, Doug Ford has, has had a transformation over the last number of years. He started off in power um, as premier, as a very bombastic individual. He picked fights with everyone from the federal government to local city councils, uh, even with members of the media. And ever since the pandemic kind of came around, though, we've seen him mellow out. We've seen him grow into the role, uh, become more of kind of the, the adult leader that people have expected him to be. And, and so I'm looking for you know, which Doug Ford are we going to see in this election campaign, right? He loves to campaign. He loves to kind of get into scraps with uh, his opponents. Are we going to see a scrappy street fighter Doug Ford? Or are we going to see the more mature dad-like Doug Ford that we often saw at those news conferences during the pandemic? That will be a really interesting dynamic to see. The other thing is on the progressive side, uh, who is it going to be? Right now, the polls are showing that NDP leader Andrea Horvath, even after four years as official opposition leader, is neck and neck in the polls with Stephen Del Duca, who really is, in terms of leadership, uh, is, is a newcomer to that role. He you know, only won the leadership in 2020 during the pan just before the pandemic and then wasn't really able to introduce himself to people because of the pandemic. And so he still is surging in the polls. Sometimes he's behind the progressive conservatives and sometimes he's neck and neck with the NDP. So will people on the left, left-leaning voters, coalesce around either the NDP or the Liberals? And when will that happen? Will that happen early in the campaign or later in the campaign? Or will they stick to their camps? Because if they do, that gives the progressive conservatives that chance to split votes, come right up the middle, and win another majority government. Lots of juicy morsels to debate on in the weeks to come. Colin, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you down the road. 
My pleasure. Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief with Global News, breaking down today's budget and the upcoming election campaign. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big day today at Queens Park. Not only is it budget day, but it is also a big rally day for a disability and poverty advocates. And here to tell us what is going on uh, on the lawn of Queens Park is Anthony Frazina. He's the director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. Anthony, welcome back to the show. How are you today? Hi, good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. So a big day uh, on the the lawn of Queen's Park. You're also going to be holding a news conference as well. What is going on? What's the message? Absolutely. So I'm actually en route to Queen's Park right now, and we are speaking about raising the rates of ODSP. Uh, The federal government set the precedence by uh, initializing CERB as uh, an amount that... uh, is for people who are unable to work as because of the pandemic. So we are hoping to raise the rates to be equal to serve at this point, hopefully more. So what do you receive right now? And, and what does that gap between ODSB and CERB look like? Certainly. Well, uh, for a single person, they receive 1169, uh, all encompassing, which is 497 is dedicated to, uh, shelter. And, uh, so, and it, so equi- equitable to CERB, that's uh, really just over half of uh, what CERB would allocate. Um, now, that also encompasses, you know, the need for food, the need for uh, clothing, and and the need just for a quality of life, uh, transportation. Let me ask you this. The Ontario Disability Coalition is calling for this, uh, the ODSP rates, if you will, the monthly um, um, financial figure that you receive. Do you want it to match CERB or does it have to go higher than that? What's what's the number you have in mind? We certainly want it to go higher than CERB. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But today we're calling it for it to match CERB, to be a start. Now, in 2018 was the last time uh, ODSP increased by 1%, and we were promised a 3% increase in 2018 for the next subsequent years, which didn't happen. And it simply is just not enough for people with disabilities, people in general, to live. You know, as cost of living goes up, as inflation rates go higher, it, it simply puts people with disabilities at a, dif- as a, at a deficit because they're you know, disability does not equal poverty, and that's another message that we're attempting to convey. And we want the opportunity to live a quality of life. And that's where probably the, a lot of the anger and the frustration lies as well, is uh, those with disabilities are not afforded the same opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, many people with disabilities are unable to work. You know, many people with disabilities want to work as well, but then uh, we're fearful of the clawback. So under ODSP currently, you are allowed to make $200 in employment income and then 50 cents on the dollar is clawed back uh, when you report your earnings on a monthly basis. That seems ludicrous because, <laughs> number one, you're trying to earn a living. Number two, you are contributing to society when you do earn a living, You know whether you're spending on food or on uh, entertainment, travel, transportation, whatever the case is. Even to have that clawback is almost like a slap in the face. Absolutely. And, and we're trying to have that clawback removed as well because as i said earlier it's it's a hindrance to the quality of life that people with disabilities want to live you know we want to be able to work but then you know we're fearful of the clawback 
to the 1169 again for a single person uh, for which they earn. It's almost like a catch-22, so to speak. Absolutely. Anthony Frazina is our guest. He's the Director of Media Relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anthony and a bunch of others will be at Queen's Park later on this morning. News conference scheduled for 10, uh, a rally on the front lawn at 11. You can follow along on social media. The hashtag is rally, the number four, rally4ODSB. Hamilton is impacted maybe to a greater extent than any other community in this province because the ratio of those who have disabilities um, in comparison to the population, it's the highest in Ontario, isn't it? Absolutely. The percentage of persons with disabilities in Hamilton is greater than the provincial national averages. As far as uh, uh, our going here for ODSP, the Ontario Disability Coalition, the ODSP Action Coalition, Disability Justice Network of Ontario. Uh, three organizations are partnering with other organizations and affiliations to rally for ODSP increases uh, at Queen's Park uh, today. And it's simply about understanding that, you know, in Hamilton, as we said, the percentage of persons with disabilities is greater than the provincial nat- national averages. But it comes to quality of life, being able to be in control, our autonomy, our agency. Uh, to be able to be able to self-govern uh, our quality of life with dignity, respect, and integrity. This is really the be-all, end-all of it uh, for many people with disabilities. One last question for you. We have about a minute. We have the provincial budget going to be uh, revealed later on today. The election campaign for June 2nd is not officially underway, but a lot of the politicians are campaigning. And there hasn't been many mention at all regarding ODSB. How frustrating is that? It's absolutely frustrating. I mean, we're hearing whispers here and there, and but nothing much. We don't anticipate uh, the budget to include a support for persons with disabilities. The pandemic has really exacerbated the need for ODSP to increase. Uh, but quite honestly, I'm cautiously uh, pessimistic, Rick. Anthony, uh, you're fighting the good fight, so we're uh, with you all the way, and hopefully we can enact some change going forward. Appreciate the time today. Good luck at the rally later on uh, this morning. Wonderful, Rick. Thanks you so much. Thanks again to Anthony Frazina, Director of Media Relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. You can follow along at hashtag rally, the number four, rally4ODSP. A news conference at 10 this morning. The rally begins at 11 on the front lawn of Queen's Park as the coalition asks for the provincial government for a permanent increase in Ontario Disability Support Program rates. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have seen the importance uh, these last two years of protecting workers during our response to COVID-19. And we have learned that preventing injury and illness requires collective commitment, collaboration, and expertise to ensure the health and safety and well-being of our employees. And as Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, as flags will be lowered to half-mass today at Hamilton City Facilities in recognition of the day of mourning today for workers killed or injured on the job. There's also going to be a small ceremony planned for 5 p.m. today at Maine and Bay. That's the site of the city's Day of Mourning Monument. Here to tell us about what is planned as well in other parts of the city perhaps is Anthony Marco, the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good, Rick. How are you? I'm okay. What does the Labor Council have planned for today? So because of the pandemic over the past couple of years, we've, we've had to shift from to more of a hybrid model of the ceremony that we normally have. We normally have a larger event at City Hall, but 
uh, we can't fill the council chamber anymore with people and do that. So we've been working with our partners over at Cable 14. We have a, uh, a broadcast that's going to be shown three times today uh, at 11 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m., uh, which anybody can watch on Cable 14. Or if they don't have a cable subscription, they can just watch on their website at that time, at any of those three times. And then at 5 o'clock, as you mentioned, we have an in-person ceremony to allow some of the local unions who participate to uh, to do reflaying. And so oftentimes if you drive by that monument out front of City Hall, you'll see at different times a year anywhere between 5 to 10 to 20 different wreaths laid out there. This is the day that many of them actually get put out there, and so we will have a very short ceremony so that we can respect social distancing. But a lot of people wanted that opportunity this year, which we haven't really been able to provide officially over the last couple of years. What are you reflecting on today? I think in, with me, it's really, unfortunately, there's a situation where in Hamilton just over the past week, we have had two worker deaths and one close to fatal injury in the past week alone. And so what I'm reflecting on is that a lot of people think the day of mourning and they think, you know, oh, you know, you know, old times when people were just working in factories and there were deplorable conditions. These deaths are happening on a continual day-to-day basis, not just in Hamilton, but of course around the world. I mean, we call it a national day of mourning, but it's celebrated by over 100 different countries now. So it's very much become international. But the, the thing that, that keeps me angered whenever I, I come to a day like this, and it should be a day of reflection, but... When I see headlines in the newspaper and hear stories about workers that are continuing to get killed on the job in our city on almost a weekly basis, it really, really strikes home this idea that all of these are preventable on some level. And we have to make sure that we are willing to to fight back and push for more health and safety regulations so that accidents like this don't happen. Why do you think it's still happening? Is it is it a combination of workers perhaps not paying attention, workplaces not uh, implementing or adhering to those rules? Is it just a combination of both? It's usually usually it's a combination of. I mean, the the biggest one is a combination of a lack of training or b lack of proper uh, safety safety equipment. Um, and when I'm not talking about safety equipment, that could be like on machinery. It could actually be. PPE, we've had workers who died because of COVID. So that in that case, a lot of it could have been personal protective equipment. But when we had uh, the worker death that happened at, uh, at 10.05 back in January, you know, it was due to machinery and not having proper guards up on the machinery. So it's definitely making sure that all of the standards that need to be met with regards to health and safety are met. But it also is proper training because at a lot of times, uh, they'll throw a new piece of machinery in or they'll throw a new process in if you're in the building trades and they'll say you do this and this and this. But we don't, workers don't necessarily have the training because it costs money to do training. And I understand that there's this, you know, you want to push for efficiency, a push to reduce the costs on this. But when workers are dying, you can see what the unfortunate result of that is. Anthony Marco is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Anthony is the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council. We're talking about the day of mourning today. There's a ceremony outside of uh, Hamilton City Hall at Main and Bay at 5 p.m. And uh, that's going to be at the Day of Mourning Monument. The latest example, and you've kind of brushed on it, uh, there was a, a man who was injured and later died after a workplace accident on Tuesday at Janko Steel in Hamilton. Ministry, investiga- or Ministry of Labor is investigating. You must go through a range of emotions when these types of incidents happen and I would guess that there's frustration there's anger there's sadness there's all these emotions that kind of boil over there is and like I mean in most cases I mean I'm never going to personally know the person who was injured or died but then I think about the impact that it has not just on uh, the family the co-workers like this person is part of the Hamilton community and oftentimes 
the stories come out now, and uh, the stories come out within an hour or two. It gets reported very quickly. And because of that, the name doesn't get reported. And so you'll have a story come out saying a worker died. And certainly it's good to know that as soon as possible. But oftentimes there's not a lot of follow-up on that. And we don't actually find out the name of the worker who died. Uh, in a couple cases we do, depending on how serious the accident was or, or how much notoriety the accident had. And I, I think that it's really important for media to, to back up and check up on some of these names and report on the impact of some of these deaths. And I think that's important because we have... We have legislation in, in Canada right now, which is based, call it based on the Westray mining disaster, called the Westray Bill, which allows employers to be held criminally negligent for any deaths that happen in their workplace. And that's not the case with every single worker death, but it allows them to be charged by the police, not just fined by the Ministry of Labor. And the recognition of the individuals in our communities who are dying because of that can certainly help towards bringing a call towards the police to investigate some of these incidents when oftentimes it's just the Ministry of Labor who gets called in. Anthony, really appreciate the time today. Let's hope that everyone working in the workplace, either physically or remotely, is staying safe, and they get home to their families in many cases and continue to do so for years to come. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Rick. Anthony Marco, President of the Hamilton and District Labor Council. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The latest census data shows that the number of Canadians aged 85 and older grew by 12 percent between 2016 and 2021. And by 2046, that 85 plus crowd is expected to be three times larger than what was recorded back in 2001. Bruce Newbold is a professor of geography and director of the School of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Newbold, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Rick? I'm good. Um, first blush when you're looking at the census data, what sticks out to you? Well, I think it really shows how fast the Canadian population is aging. And as you mentioned, the growth of that older adult, that 85 plus age group, that's really growing as well. So what challenges does an older workforce present for governments, for healthcare in the years to come? Yeah, for sure. If, if you're an employer and you're looking at an aging workforce, and especially those that are sort of 55 to 64 getting ready for retirement, you've really got to be thinking about how you're going to replace that workforce, how you're going to train new people in, or whether you're going to be able to um, keep them on longer as part of your employees. You need to be thinking over the next 10 years, how you're going to keep them engaged in your workplace. So that succession plan of the workplace, if it's not already in place, it should be started now. Exactly. Yeah. You need to start thinking now if you're an employer. The pandemic has also shone a big spotlight on really the serious cracks in our healthcare system and our long-term care system for that matter. Um, is the already tattered healthcare umbrella in for a world of hurt here in the years to come? Well, I think there's going to be some things that come out of it. The COVID pandemic has really shown us where we have problems with our healthcare system and its vulnerabilities. And that's going to be conti continue to be tested over the coming decades. Uh, you know, we see that older population, we know it's coming. And it's some of those older adults that are the highest users of our healthcare system. So that's going to put pressure on them. We also th have to think about how we're going to pay for that, where we've got a shrinking workforce but a growing older adult population that's starting to draw more heavily on healthcare, where's that 
support going to come from? Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Bruce Newbold. He is a professor of geography and the director of the School of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University, talking about the latest census data that shows the number of Canadians aged 85 and older grew by 12% between 2016 and 2021. Uh, That 85-plus crowd by 2046 is going to be three times larger than when it was back in 2001. And one of the questions is, where are we going to put all these people? Where are they going to live? Yeah, and that's a really good question, Rick. You know, part of it, we've got the institutional, uh, you know, home care, retirement type homes. Again, we've seen cracks with that type of system. So I think what we need to be planning for is where people can age in place, you know, age in their current home, grow older in their current home, or at least the community. So we've got to have pieces in place to support them to age in place. And staying in your own home, that's so important, we know, because it allows you to maintain social networks, you can stay healthier, and hopefully live longer and better by having that access to your home environment. This latest census data for the first time also painted a picture of Canada's trans and non-binary population. What did you make of some of the stats you saw there? Well, I think it's it's you know just really interesting to see for the first time the scale of the population and to see this group represented in Canadian statistics. We've never done that before. And now to be able to see them there, it gives them voice and representation uh, within the Canadian census and the Canadian population. Yeah, one in 300 uh, self-identified in yep. 2021. And that, I don't know, I thought that number was um, higher than I anticipated. I don't know, I'm probably out to lunch, but was that a number that you kind of expected? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I don't think we were really sort of knowing where that was because we've never done anything like this before. And there still may be a tendency for some people to not identify their gender or their sex on the census. There still may be some concern with doing that. Um, you know, so it's it's probably a reasonable representation of, of uh, this group within the Canadian population. What does it say about our country, too, that we're the first ones to have this kind of info? Well, I think it shows, you know, once again, that we're very forward thinking, uh, you know, to think about the representation within the population and really sort of sets us apart from other countries that collect uh, census information. Absolutely. Dr. Newbold, appreciate the time today. Thanks for breaking down the stats for us. Thank you, Rick. Take care. That is Dr. Bruce Newbold, Professor of Geography and the Director of School of Earth, Environment and Society at McMaster University. You can get a boatload of other census-related data on our website at 900chml.com or globalnews.ca. Some great breakdown of the stats and what it means for generations going forward. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The fascination over the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard defamation case continues to grow and may know no bounds. The couple's marriage lasted only a few months, as you probably know. They split up in 2016. This court battle revolves around an op-ed that Heard wrote for the Washington Post back in 2018, in which she described surviving domestic violence without mentioning Depp by name. Besides that, Depp is uh, launching a lawsuit, or has launched a lawsuit, suing her for $50 million in damages and claims that Heard was abusive towards him. Heard, for her part, is countersuing for $100 million, $100 million bucks. Ari Goldkind is a Toronto defense lawyer and is here to help us break down how this case may or may not transpire. Ari, good morning. Welcome to the show. Great to be on with you, Rick. I'm not sure how closely you've been following this case, but it's been fascinating to follow. What, if anything, has caught your eye? What's caught my eye are two things. One just how ugly 
the whole thing is. I have been following it. It's like a car crash. It's hard not to watch when the clips go up. And remember, this is a televised trial, which is very unusual, especially for us in Canada, who know that uh, trials aren't televised here. Now, this is a civil proceeding, but everything about it is sort of uncivil. It's unseemly. Both parties look terrible. There is no doubt she's an abuser. I mean, she basically is caught on her own tape admitting it uh, a number of times. Uh, so it's really both sides ugly. His drug and uh, cocaine and alcohol fuel binges, I think, are going to be a real, real problem at the end of the day to his case. But the second point that really jumps out to me, and I think a lot of people are seeing this, so I won't pretend to be incredibly original about this, We've lived through a sort of four- or five-year period, sort of post-Jean Gomeshi, I'll give it a Canadian connection here, where, you know, we were told you have to believe all women. And in some places, you're told you have to believe all X, Y, or Z, that everybody of a certain demographic is believable. What we're learning in the Hurt Depp trial is just how far somebody who you're told is not allowed to lie because she's a woman and women must all be believed, and allegations must be true. We're learning that when the actual truth comes out, the full evidence, the full picture, stories are not always what they seem, and both sexes, all people, are capable of lying, no matter whether you call yourself a man, woman, a child, a husband, a wife, everybody in certain circumstances is capable of lying, and in Hurd's case, abuse. But it is an ugly, ugly mess, Rick. It's a great point. These are two Hollywood stars. Uh, the court proceedings, as you mentioned, are being shown on YouTube for all to see. What challenge, from a legal perspective, does that bring? I think, one, it sort of plays certain things up for the camera. There's no doubt that both of them know the camera is there. If you look at how Johnny Depp is answering questions, he knows, because he's been out of the spotlight, which I'll get to in just a moment about what this case is really about, and why I think Johnny Depp may have some trouble in it, the way he lost his uh, libel suit in the United Kingdom, that the cameras play a significant role. I mean, the, the, the lawyers act differently. I've always believed that. Um, but certainly Depp's answers are sort of, he knows cameras are on him. He knows this is a chance to rehabil- rehabilitate his image. Amber Heard knows that there is a camera. Just for your listeners who may not be familiar with this, there is a camera locked on Amber Heard throughout every second of this and you know that in certain circumstances she is changing her face or her facial features because there's a camera there one million percent these are two very well-known famous people which comes into it with the elon musk uh, dating stories that came up in court but here's where johnny depp's going to have trouble and it's a really interesting point that nobody seemed to pick up on in the testimony the other day the defamation suit very quickly is that her op-ed, which never named him but everybody knew was about him, cost him his career. And if anybody understands how much money Johnny Depp went from making to not making after the domestic abuse allegations came out, you can read that on your own. That's the nub of this. But what her lawyer did, I thought effectively, but it didn't get picked up in U.S. media, is it showed that prior to her op-ed, which is the subject of this lawsuit, All of his drug use, his alcohol use, his being late to set, his being completely unprofessional at times, was leading to all sorts of very nasty headlines and bad rumors about his way of conducting himself. That was a very effective moment, because if the jury 
believes that she was just the final straw and he had all these issues prior to her op-ed, his lawsuit and defamation uh, argument becomes a lot weaker. Ari, we only have about a minute on this, sure. but you mentioned the name Elon Musk, and there's been a lot of dirty laundry that's been aired out in this court case already. Court heard that Elon was uh, dating her while she was trying to reconcile with Johnny Depp. Also heard that she's got a personality disorder as well. Does, does this sort of dirty laundry usually happen in court? It does. I mean, I think that's what it is. You're throwing things at the wall that a jury you hope will stick. The psychological analysis of Ms. Heard was interesting. It really said sort of what I said at the beginning, that she's quite capable of manipulation to her own end. She'll start a relationship lovely, lovely, dovey, uh, very devoted, very nice. And then when things don't go her way, they turn. I think a lot of listeners go, that sounds familiar to me. But, you know, the Elon Musk part, uh, I thought was sort of peripheral. It was basically to suggest that you know, she's using one famous rich man to get back at another rich, famous man. And in 10 seconds, Johnny Depp's former agent, who happens to be Lady Gaga's ex-fiance, said out loud, well, if Amber Heard and Johnny Depp don't want this noise, particularly Heard, why keep dating extraordinarily famous people? Because that's what puts your name in the news. It was a little interesting tidbit that I think all these people, as they say, Rick, a pox sort of on all of their houses. Absolutely. Ari Goldkind, thank you for the time today. Thank you, Rick. That is Toronto defense lawyer Ari Goldkind breaking down the latest greatest in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation case. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A popular Hamilton bakery has released a new cookbook. Great timing as well. Mother's Day right around the corner. That would make for a great gift. It would make for a great gift at any time of the year. Josie Rutterham is her name. She's the co-owner and a food stylist with Cake and Loaf Bakery in Hamilton. Josie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm excellent. Thanks for having me, Rick. You and uh, co-founder Nikki Miller have written a cookbook. Why did you decide to put one out there? Uh, well, people have been begging us for years to share our recipes because we don't ship goods, but we have um, followers on social media all across the globe. So we have occasionally shipped really special things like our cream egg brownies, um, but this gives everyone an opportunity to try our recipes. So this is your first cookbook then? It is our first cookbook. It was a huge, humbling experience <laughs> for us. Uh, we've been bakers for over 20 years, um, but we've never had to translate our recipes into ones that people can use at home. Um, so that was a real adventure. And Nikki took every single photo in this book. She'd never used like a true camera. She'd usually taken pictures with her phone. Um, so she set up a studio in her, in her home and she took all these pictures. And uh, I think it speaks for itself. She did an amazing job. Absolutely. I was leafing through some of the photos online and they look spectacular. What was the process like of, you know, choosing these recipes and then kind of writing about them and including them in the book? Choosing them was probably the hardest part. We actually sat at the Hamilton Public Library, I think for an entire day, Nikki and I, and just kind of went through you know, 15 years of recipes and like what were people's favorites and what customers like really loved that they wanted to see in there and what were like our favorites that we really wanted to share. Um, and then we got we got to work like putting this all together, but we were doing it in the middle of COVID. So it was it was a little bizarre. Our bakery was closed for a couple months. And then when we came back, we had a very small staff and we wanted to make sure we gave them all the hours that was available. Um, so we would work early mornings baking stuff up for the cookbook. I would drop it off at Nikki's house for her to take pictures of. 
Um, and then we went back and forth on the content of the book, like digitally. Mostly we didn't even see each other during the process of writing the book. Wow. So how long did the process take? Years. Wow, really? <laughs> the longest project I've ever worked on. Um, I thought having kids was bad. You know, waiting the nine months for a child <laughs> to be born was pretty hard. But this, um, we started this in the end of 2019. So it's actually been almost three years that we've been working on it. So it, it feels really great to get it out to the world and have people to share it with. That's pretty cool. Josie Rutterham is our guest co-founder and food stylist at Cake and Loaf Bakery in Hamilton. They have a new book out. It's called Cake and Loaf. Satisfy your cravings with over 85 recipes for everyday baking and special treats. Can can anyone pick up this book and create something that is going to mimic what you sell in the store? Absolutely. So I'm I'm really excited about this book because I'm I'm the loaf side of Cake and Loaf. Nikki does these beautiful, you know, stunning cakes and she's very artistic and very creative but for me it's always been about like how quickly can I get a chocolate chip cookie into my mouth <laughs> and I, I feel like this book really has all those basic recipes that you want in your home so like chocolate chip cookies banana bread you know peanut butter cookies things that take less than half an hour to whip up um, but there's also the really complex stuff that we make like our fancy bars and our layered cakes and our pies so the first couple chapters is for everyone after that you know, you're building your skills and trying new stuff. Uh, this book includes a collection of more than 85 of your favorite sweet recipes. Are you okay with sharing your baking secrets? We were a little insecure about that. Um, we we were super lucky to be approached by Penguin to write a proposal for this book. So we we didn't, writing a cookbook wasn't actually on the radar when we were approached. It was like a one-day dream. Um, so that was our first thought is like, do we want to share these? But we feel, well, first of all, you can't really replicate the true magic of cake and loaf because it's, you know, it's everything. It's all the employees. It's the special ingredients we use. It's our years of experience. But um, like, it's nice to make them your own at home, right? To modify them to be your own taste or make them exactly how your family likes them. Uh, you can visit them at cakeandloaf.ca. Uh, of course, you can visit the Cozy Gourmet Bakery at 321 Dundurn Street South for some tasty treats as well. We're in discussion with Josie Rutterham. She's the co-owner and food stylist at Cake and Loaf Bakery here in Hamilton with a new cookbook called Cake and Loaf. Um, the cookbook also includes stories about your approach to business. Why was it important to include that? I think for us, like food was just kind of the mechanism for us to try to change the world, you know, a little bit to try to be the place that we wanted to see. So we had worked at a couple bakeries that we um, weren't always happy with how they approached like, uh, I don't know, like compost or, or their approach to living wage. And so this was our chance to build something new, to build something that uh, did things a little differently. And we wanted to share that story with everyone, how we got there, some of the challenges and all the successes. Was there any discussion to make this a digital book as opposed to a physical book? Because everything nowadays seems to be online. People still collect yeah. cookbooks and go to cookbooks, but what was the thought process behind that? So you can buy a digital version. You okay. can buy a Kindle version of the book, absolutely, if that's how you prefer your books. Um, but I am a cookbook collector. I love writing in cookbooks. I love the little stains that develop over the years. I feel like, you know, a good cookbook becomes like part of your family as well. So there's something to be said for holding physical books still. Yeah, some some of my favorite cookbooks in my house have, you know, tomato stains uh, from pasta recipes or, you know, chocolate yeah. stains from, you know, baking cookies. Th those are the, the best kind of recipes because you know those recipes work because, you know, you've put some love into it. 
Absolutely. I joke with my employees that like, that's how you can tell which recipes I like in my cookbook. So you just have to look for the dirty pages. Yeah. Speaking of which, do you have a favorite recipe in this book? I think my favorite recipe has to be the gummy bear cookies because my kids invented them. So they, uh, they had been begging me for a cookie filled with gummy candies. And like, if you know anything about baking, gummy candies are very high in sugar. They melt instantly. They burn really easily. It's very hard to bake them into anything. Um, so my kids and I spent a long time working on that recipe together at home and we developed something that uh, everybody loves now. So that one's, that one's special. So is that one towards the end of the book because it's hard to do? <laughs> Uh, no, it's not. It's, oh, one wow. of the, it's one of the first recipes that's actually very easy to do. It's a very basic dough. Um, and it's one of the recipes that I'm seeing people, like people are sharing what they're baking on social media. That's one of the most commonly made recipes. That's sweet. Josie, really appreciate the time today. Best of luck with the book and, of course, at Cake and Loaf as well. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Josie Rutterham, co-owner and food stylist at Cake and Loaf Bakery in Hamilton. Visit them at 321 Dundurn Street South. And you can also go online to cakeandloaf.ca. The book is called Cake and Loaf. Satisfy your cravings with over 85 recipes for everyday baking and special treats. You can check it out online. Uh, it's from Penguin Random House Canada. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.